The history. Tell me what you saw. The people. Hey, neighbor. The legends. I bring good news. The actions. If you build it, you will come. The vision and evolution of Southern California's desert cities. Boy, I got vision and the rest of the world wears bifocals. From mid-century. We're halfway there. To modern day. I'm building something. These are the stories of how the greater Palm Springs region has become America's playground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do this. iHub Radio presents Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence. Welcome back to another week with the Chronicles. I am Randy Florence here on iHub Radio. If you had the uh, under in the total number of episodes that we would be on air, uh, you lost. And I know most of those were just my family. So for those of you who had the over, congratulations. Today... My guest is Julie Mackinnon. Julie has been the executive editor of the Desert Sun since 2018. In addition, she has served as the state editor for California for the USA Today Network and director of the California News Publishers Association. Julie has served as Beijing bureau chief for the LA Times. She received her bachelor's degree in human biology from Stanford and her master's degree in East Asian studies from UCLA. Welcome, Julie, and all of that explains how you ended up in Coachella Valley. (laughs) Hey, Randy. (laughs) Nice Nice to be with you today. Thank you for being on the show. So let's start at the beginning. Julie, where were you born and raised? Um, I'm a native of Cleveland, Ohio. Um, my family's also in the Midwest and, uh, grew up in Cleveland, was a paper girl for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Wow. And yeah, um, but never, you know, never thought I'd end up as a local newspaper lady <laughs> when I was a kid. <laughs> what, what was in your history as a child that started moving you to the direction that got you where you are today? Um, well, I had my newspaper route with my best friend who lived across the street and she would deliver on one side of the block and I would deliver on the other. And she would always finish before me because I would sort of read the paper (laughs) while I was delivering it and she just delivered it, you know, so maybe that was a sign, but, um, you know, I didn't really, I just, uh, I never planned to do this. I was studying human biology at Stanford. I was planning to go to med school. Some friends who were working for the campus newspaper roped me into doing some science stories at first. Um, and I just really got into it. It was fun. And um, the more human biology classes I took, the more I realized that um, I don't like seeing bloody things. <laughs> uh, the thought of like doing surgery on somebody, you know, would, is enough to make me faint. And so I, um, I decided maybe I should figure something else out, but I didn't know what that was going to be. And um, lucky for me, a guy um, from the Washington Post came to campus one day and he was recruiting interns. And my then boyfriend who worked at at the campus newspaper, you know, after hearing the guy's pitch, you know, aggressively declared that he was going to apply for this internship. And I said, well, if you're going to apply, I'm going to apply too. So (laughs) we both got the internship and we went off to Washington. But even at that point, I was just like, okay, well, this is a good thing to do for the summer after we graduate. I still have no idea, you know, what I'm going to do. But I just, uh, the internship got, you know, 
turned into a you know longer thing, and before I knew it, I'd been working there for six years as an editor and a reporter. So wow, yeah, it just happened. <laughs> so you moved away from biology as a result. Yes. Now, yes. D- did you did you get the degree in the East Asian studies as you were starting to think about journalism, or is that just a different interest of yours? That is just a side interest. Um, I was an exchange student in Japan um, the summer after I graduated from high school. Um, and, um, you know, I was a kid from Ohio. I, I think I, I think I, you know, I didn't learn anything in school really about Asia. I took a world history class, but I think we spent like maybe two days on Asia. You know, it was a lot of like European stuff. I mean, this was the 80s in Ohio. I mean, you know, there were no Asian people in my town like I I just got sent to Japan kind of you know out of the blue and it was a real shock you know to to go to a place I mean I thought I was a smarty pants you know I was like you know straight A student in my high school I was you know going off to college and then you know taking the summer break to go to Japan um, kind of you know really humbled me because you get there and uh, you can't read anything, you can't mm. speak the language, you don't know what the food is, you don't know what any of this stuff is. You know, to go down the street and not be able to tell what the stores are because you can't read any of the signs, um, that really had a profound impact on me. And um, so as an undergrad, I took, um, I studied Japanese, but not as my major, just kind of as a hobby. And then after you know a while away from school um i had the opportunity while i was working at the la times um they had a like a tuition reimbursement program and ucla was launching this new master's degree in east asian studies and so i was i applied for the first class of that and um was part of the inaugural launch of that program um so you could focus on i believe it you know it was china japan or um the koreas i chose japan because i was you know already had a background on that but um it did sort of lead me down the path to you know working in asia um you know on a more extended basis yeah so you didn't like blood Um, And your first experience (laughs) to another country was, oh, my gosh, I can't read the signs. And then ultimately, you've reported from countries like Iraq, Afghanistan, North Korea, China, Japan, Mongolia, Myanmar. I'm assuming you've seen some of that in each one of those places. Yes. Yes. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. (laughs) So. Let's talk a little bit about that, if we can, that the, kind of the progression yeah. of things that ended up leading you to take on, I mean, other than perhaps just an editor who was trying to get rid of you. Um, mm. what, what were the other reasons that you were finding yourself in such hot spots? Well, um, I, I went from when I was working at The Washington Post, I, I started off working in the metro section, like most of the you know younger people that they hire there. Um, and I was, um, I ended up being the night city editor, uh, which is a glamorous shift that goes from about, you know, 7 p.m. to 3 a.m. <laughs> and you sit around listening to the police scanner and you work with a couple other strange birds who, you know, are sort of night owls. Um, but I did that for a couple of years, quite early in my career. I was probably 
23 at that time. Um, and then they had an opening for a similar position on the foreign news desk. Um, so that's where I really started getting into foreign news. Um, so I was the night editor, the Washington Post foreign section. Mm-hmm. I think I like, you know, when I was young. And the great part about that, though, is when it's night in Washington, it's, you know, it's daytime in Europe and many other places. So um, I got to work really closely with a lot of the foreign correspondents at the Washington Post because they'd call and, you know, the big bosses would be asleep, but I'd be there and I'd get to work with them on their whatever was happening that day in their world. Um, And so, you know, that really moved me, you know, really increased my interest in international uh, reporting. And then I moved to L.A. in in 2000. um, And uh, shortly after that, got a job with the L.A. Times foreign section, which at the time, actually, L.A. Times had more foreign correspondents than the Washington Post. Wow. That's a pretty interesting statistic. Not true today, but it was then. <laughs> so um, the Middle East, um, talk to us a little bit about your experiences there, if you could. Uh, some of the obviously more difficult things that you might have seen there and had to experience. Uh, were there ever any times where you're like, I- I've got to get out of here because I don't feel safe? Um. I mean, when I, I mean, I was in, so I was sent to Iraq as part of our uh, LA Times team covering the war there. So it was like summer of 2003 was, um, hmm. was, was it, was the period. Uh, it was shortly after we had invaded. We had, we probably had ooh, maybe a dozen reporters there at that time. And we, we had a bureau in Baghdad. We, um, and everyone kind of lived and worked out of um, one central house and then like a hotel down the street. So we had a staff of Iraqis and we had, um, you know, reporters from the U.S. who were there. Uh, We had some reporters who were embedded with um, the military and uh, we ended up sending editors over um, to kind of manage things because again, it's time difference, you know, a lot's Mm -hmm. happening. The reporters have questions if their editors are back in LA and asleep, it doesn't, you know, the day is over in Iraq before you can consult with someone. Right. So, um, so I was sent over sort of like, um, mother hen (laughs) (laughs) operation. Um, but that was a, it was, that was a time when, you know, uh, things are starting to go south in Iraq. Um, it was, you know, uh, the, 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 the notion that we were going to be graded as liberators and all this stuff was starting to turn. And um, I was there for the first major bombing, which is when the UN, um, was, the UN was bombed. And that was the very beginning of um, the insurgency in Iraq. I remember working on a story with a reporter there who uh, we, we were trying to describe these things that later became known as IEDs. Mm-hmm. Um, but they weren't known as IEDs then, right? So um, there was a lot going on. We did have some incidents where there was a, a bombing at a restaurant that uh, we used to like to go to. I wasn't there that night, but um, many of my colleagues were. Um, one of my colleagues um, lost an eye in that um, mm-hmm. incident. Um, so, you know, there, you know, there's definitely 
people I know who had very close calls. I mean, obviously, you know, people who I associate with, like Anthony Shadid from the Washington Post, mm. who was killed there. Um, you know, yep. uh, it, the the danger is real. But I would also say the danger is real here in the U.S. too. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on everywhere. So yeah, there's no doubt about that. How did um, and we'll talk about this a little bit more going forward, but. How did those experiences add to your skills as an editor? What do you use from those times? I think that's an interesting question. Well, one thing I can say is that, you know, um, I've, I've been in work remote mode for a long time. Because, <laughs> Good. That's an excellent point. You know, um, working you know, as an editor in the foreign news section, all my reporters were remote, right? So... Uh, when I was at the Washington Post or the or um, L.A. Times or even when I was working um, with the New York Times in Hong Kong, you know, most of the reporters were not, you know, coming into the office. They were thousands of miles away and we had to deal with that. So for the past year where we've been remote here at the Desert Sun, um, it just feels kind of like going back into that mode a little bit. Yeah, we'll pick up on that a little bit more as we move into the next segment here on the Coachella Valley Chronicles with my guest, Julie Mackinnon. Let's just call it what it is. Coachella Valley Chronicles continues on iHub Radio. You are the story. Here's Randy Florence. Welcome back to the Chronicles. We are here with my guest, Julie Mackinnon, executive editor of the Desert Sun. Uh, We were talking uh, before the uh, break there about uh, Julie's time in Iraq. Um, was, Was there ever a time where you felt like you could relax while you were there? Oh, we had, we had, I mean, we had a good time, you know, I mean, there was, you had to be vigilant. We had security, um, at our house, you know, guys with big guns, Mm. (laughs) um, protecting the house. But we also had a, we had a swimming pool at that house as luck would have it. I mean, it's like being, it's like the climate is very similar to here in the desert and the, the water would be so hot during the day you couldn't go in. Um, but we would go in at night and, um, relax and you know we had barbecues out in that courtyard and um it was a very that there was an optimism among the iraqis that we were working with at that time you know who basically had all just grown up under saddam and and were experiencing freedoms that they hadn't known you know for Mm -hmm. the very first time so much stuff was coming, you know, uh, Iraq was a very closed country in a lot of ways then. And, you know, the internet was still really, you know, new at that time. And so internet was blowing up in, in Iraq and people were just getting access to so much more like information and, um, culture and, 
uh, it was a, a sort of a time of exuberance, um, but obviously also a lot of uncertainty. So um, I guess I would describe it as sort of a, it was a heady type situation. People's lives were changing very rapidly. Mm. Um, and that was cool to see, but obviously, um, you know, the security situation uh, rapidly devolved. Yeah. How long were you there? Um, that was about four or five months at that time. Yeah. So you said when when you were first there, there was some exuberance on the uh, Iraqis' part, um, and maybe towards the American journalists. Was there any point when you were there where that started to shift in the way that they started to deal with you? No, it was still very early then, mm-hmm. and um, you know the um, it, it was unclear, you know, where things were going. This was very um, early on, in you know, trying to set up the post-war government and a lot of negotiations over that. Um, you know, there you could see the seeds of discontent starting to brew, but it really hadn't coalesced yet, you know. Were there a lot of other foreign journalists, other countries that were there at the same time? There were a lot of European journalists there, as you probably recall. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, we managed to get a few of our European allies uh, on board with the invasion. And so, you know, there were reporters, you know, from the UK and, and some other European countries there. I don't. I don't remember too many um, reporters from, you know, Asia or South America or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So. And how much did the citizens utilize you for information? Uh, did they, how much did they want to know about the United States and how much did they want to know about what you knew about whatever plans were taking place on the on the streets of Iraq? Oh, well, I mean, the... I mean, you know, I, I didn't interact regularly with, you know, many Iraqis outside of our sort of, you know, group of, of locals there that we had, we were employing. Um, so, you know, it was more just the group of reporters and, and helpers that we were, were working with. Um, but I was going to make a point there. Um so, you know, it's not like I went and talked to the neighbors or something, yeah. you know. Did, did you um, have a were, sense that they trusted you? Long- oh, yeah, for yeah. sure. I mean, I, um, you know, uh, a, a guy that I worked with very closely in Iraq, um, I ended up, um, you know, helping sponsor him f- uh, for a visa to come to the U.S. He, he moved here with his family Um in 2008 so you know for five years after i was there you know we we maintained friendship and contact and you know i helped him come to the u.s um with his wife and his young son at that point um because at that point the security situation was just extremely dire um he has you know become um 
He's had incredible success here. He went to work for the city of L.A. He became the head IT guy for L.A. Parks and Rec. He has three kids now. They're all, you know, um, quite Americanized, and one of them's a teenager at this point. So uh, the bonds that, you know, not just me, but many of American journalists formed with uh, their, you know, Iraqi counterparts um, have been very enduring. I had a colleague at the L.A. Times um who's now a very senior editor there, and she married uh, one of the Iraqis that worked with us. Wow. When we come back, we're going to get into, uh, we're going to move out of Iraq, and we're going to move to the desert and the desert sun. We'll talk a little bit more with Julie Mackinnon after this break. I'm Randy Florence on the Coachella Valley Chronicles. From the Gene Autry Trail to the Empire Polo Grounds. Have you seen it? Like desert sands through an hourglass. With great power comes great responsibility. These are the Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence on iHub Radio. Cool. Here's Randy. Welcome back to the Coachella Valley Chronicles with my guest Julie Mackinnon. Julie is the executive editor of the Desert Sun. Julie, I want to read something here. In, in 2017, Larry Bohannon wrote an article about the Desert Sun. And in that article, um, this was written. In the August 4th, 1955 edition of the Desert Sun, on the eve of its 28th anniversary, a story marking the occasion read in print. Within the pap- pages of a newspaper, historians and students will for all time be able to read the record of the rise or fall of a nation, the growth of a state, or the betterment of a community. A newspaper chronicles the birth of a child or the death of a leader, stands with and protects the freedoms of the nation, and above all, acts as a tribune of the people to inform, protect, and guarantee them the right to know. That was written in 1955, before Twitter, Mm -hmm. Facebook, Instagram, I want to talk yeah. a little bit about the, the Desert Sun, but I want to look at it kind of like a version of Benjamin Button. Let's go backwards. Mm-hmm. What's the status of the sun today? I know the printing presses were, were shut down, what, last September? Yep. So describe the Desert Sun as a business today. Well, um, you know, I think what, some people know and, and some people don't understand about the Desert Sun is the Desert Sun is uh, uh, owned by Gannett. Uh, it has been owned by uh, Gannett uh, since um, the late 80s. So it means we're part of a large newspaper chain. And, and that newspaper chain um, actually w- was bought by another entity in 2019 called Gatehouse. 
so Gatehouse sort of swallowed Gannett, but they kept the Gannett name. So uh, it's a little bit confusing in that, you know, it seems to be, you know, outwardly seems to be have retained the same ownership, but is a completely different um, group of people who are managing that company. Um, you know, interestingly, the the last uh, CEO of Gannett was a guy named Bob Dickey, who had been publisher here in Palm Springs uh, during um uh, you know, sort of the height of prosperity of the Desert Sun and rose through the ranks to, to lead uh, the, the entire newspaper chain. Um, you know, so uh, he he left Gannett. Um, the company was sold to this other newspaper company and um, creating, you know, the largest newspaper company in, in the country. Um, and then the pandemic hit, you know. Yes. Um, so, you know, Gatehouse, a.k.a. Gannett, um, you know, is a, is a pretty um, cost-conscious uh, company. Uh, they believe that combining these two newspaper companies would, uh, you know, they saw a lot of opportunity to, uh, you know, to identify what, what uh, some people like to call synergies, uh, which means opportunities to reduce duplicative things um and you know they they uh i think the pandemic you know only uh sped up um some of the imperatives to um you know identify and execute on those opportunities so um you know you're seeing a lot of um places in the company the if the if the company owned owned a office building or you know, printing press, they've, um, they're selling off property, they're closing down printing presses, like, you know, not just the Desert Suns, but um, other places, um, aggressively, you know, reducing expenses. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, the hope is to um, stabilize the overall business. Um, the stock price is up. It was below a dollar uh, at, at uh, you know, kind of at the beginning of the pandemic. It's, you know, been over $5 lately. So, um, you know, some would say that uh, the leadership of the company is doing exactly what they said they were going to do when they brought the two companies together. Um, you know, so there's sort of what's going on at the macro level, Um but the impacts of how that play out at every individual uh, newsroom is, you know, maybe feels a little different. Yeah. Describe to me the differences between April of 2019, April of 2020, and April of 2021 in terms of you being the editor of The Desert Sun. Well, um, it's interesting. So April 2019, I had been there about six months. You know, I had done a lot of um, getting to know people in the community more, was attending, you know, events probably five nights a week, having coffees with people, having breakfast with people. We were aggressively developing um, a lot of in-person uh, events. We had transformed our, the first floor of our building, which had a lot of underutilized space into sort of an events 
um, venue. We were doing um, some of our storytellers nights there. Mm-hmm. We had a, um, we did some open houses for the public. Um, you know, we got a setup where we could accommodate hundreds of people to come and, um, you know, visit the newsroom, meet with our reporters and editors, see the printing press. And, um, you know, I thought this would be, you know, doing events is a strategy that a lot of um, newspaper companies have had put, been pushing hard on pre-pandemic as a new revenue sort of stream. Um, and so I was excited about that. You know, we have this great building. We have this um, space to do this. People want to come here. They drive by our building all the time. They've never been inside. They want to know what goes on there. Um, it's great for our reporters and editors because they don't have to, you know, drive across town to go to an event, right, and meet people. So uh, we were aggressively doing that. And, um, uh, you know, (laughs) a year later, uh, all that was completely uh, shut down. Uh, Not possible. Working from home. um, You know, all events canceled. Um, And the focus then, you know, the focus at that point was, you know, just strictly dealing with the flood of um, breaking news day to day, taking care of my people, transitioning to them to this work from home situation that persists even today. Um, So, you know, that was a completely different situation. And then fast forward to this year, um, you know, I see sort of the light at the end of the tunnel in terms of working from home. I'm hopeful that we're going to kind of return to an office situation this summer. Um, That's complicated by the fact that our building um, is being sold um, and will undergo some modifications. So, you know, that's a little bit unclear right now as to exactly when we'll be going back. Um, We've had a lot of, we've had a very stable staff during the pandemic until right at the end of 2020. And then, at the end of 2020, um, I just had a lot of people um, in the last few months uh, leave for new opportunities. So almost a third of my staff uh, has left in the last four months, hmm. um, which is tough. Um, I mean, I'm happy for um, people when they move on to bigger and better things. You know, I consider it sort of actually a mark that I'm doing the right thing that other people want to hire my journalists um that you know they're seen as uh people with skills and desirable employees you know and um uh, journalism is a small and smaller and smaller world these days so when people you know when, when you know when people get the opportunity to move on and move up um you know i don't uh you know that that is a good thing for them and for for me in a way, um, but it is tough to lose so much um, staff at once. It's uh, you know people have been, you know I've had people walk out the door with twenty six years of experience and sixteen years of experience here in the desert, and all that accumulated knowledge goes with them, right? So um, hiring people, hiring good people, takes a long time, takes longer during the pandemic. Um, and so, you know, I've been very focused on the, in the last couple months of recruiting, recruiting an opinion editor, a health reporter, a breaking news reporter, <laughs> a reporter for the East Valley, a reporter for the West Valley, 
um, a politics reporter, um, producer, you know, we've, it's just been a lot of um, turnover, I think, you know, because, uh, you know, people are sort of frozen in place during the pandemic. And I think at some point that got to people and they needed some change and they started, you know, reevaluating, looking around, you know, I think people needed movement in their lives. And and I think it's not just us seeing this. I've heard this from people in many different businesses. Yeah. And and you as a as an editor and as a boss, you were having to deal with something that you I suspect you hadn't dealt with before in your career, uh, if if ever, which is trying to get people to do a job while they're afraid, uh, fearful for you know, the people around them. How did you deal with that? Was it, was that something that uh, was a little, was it a struggle for you since you had to, hadn't had to manage through that before? Um, I mean, you know, uh, I think there's, this is a different sort of situation, but you know, there's, there's been many times in my life where I try to, have to work with reporters about, you know, managing their safety, having Mm -hmm. a safety plan, having protocols, you know, whether you're going out to cover a, you know, you're in a war zone or you're covering a protest or you're covering a wildfire or um, a natural disaster, you know, Um, there's a lot of things reporters do kind of in the course of their normal business pandemic aside where they're, you know, going into situations that are, are risky and so you know part of my job as an editor is to um you know think through those scenarios uh come up with you know protocols buddy systems whatever making sure they have the right gear you know we have in our office we have like um fire protective suits for our reporters when they go out to a wildfire we have you know a battery uh, like a jumper cables and stuff for their cars to take with them um you know stuff happens i had a reporter out yesterday covering the um the officer involved shooting that jammed up traffic all over mm-hmm. creation yesterday her car broke down when she was out there i mean it sounds like no big deal it was freaking hot out there <laughs> and you know she um it, there was traffic and AAA couldn't get to her and you know a very ordinary situation like that can quickly turn into something that I'm, you know, have to really be careful, you know, keeping my people safe. Right. Thank you for telling us that. When we come back on the next segment, I want to get into an article that you just wrote a few days ago regarding this uh, academic study that the Desert Sun Opinion page was working on regarding polarization. When we come back with the Coachella Valley Chronicles. And the where. This is Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence. The 411 on the events, the personalities, and the history that have built an oasis in the desert. 
Here's Randy. Welcome back to the Chronicles. I'm here with my guest, Julie Mackinnon from the Desert Sun. Julie, the last four or five years have brought a tenor to the national discussion that has just been frankly brutal and difficult. First of all, as a professional journalist, how do you deal with the whole issue of media bashing and fake news? Um, I mean, it's tough. It's tough. I mean, I, I, because I think there has been a change, you know, in the media landscape, the, the, you know, with cable television news, um, with social media, um, you know, this is not the Walter Cronkite era of journalism. Um, so there's been fragmentation, there's been echo chambers, and um, there's just been a lot that has transformed our media landscape and um, sort of media literacy has lagged um, behind that. Um, there's so much that's happened, um, you know, that we could do a whole series of shows about that, Randy. Yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, when I, when I hear that kind of thing, you know, you know, I mean, we've had protests here in Riverside County with people at the Board of Supervisors standing outside with placards, you know, about fake news and stuff. And so when I encounter someone who's, you know, um, going down that road, well, first thing I say is, you know, well, you know, what are you talking about? What is the news to you? Is that, is that, what is that? It's a huge bucket, right? Like, is it, is it Desert Sun in the same bucket as CNN, as, YouTube, as Facebook, like, what do you, I try to break people, uh, you know, clarify with them, you know, what do you mean fake news? What do you mean, you know, the media is biased? What is the media to you? And, you know, get them to think about, you know, is, is your local reporter covering your city council the same as, you know, uh, a Rush Limbaugh, or Rachel Maddow? Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, the closer I can pinpoint people on, on what their beefs are, um, then we can get to a dialogue. But, uh, you know, um, the letters to the editor inbox is, uh, <laughs> I like to think of it as sort of, you know, that it's sort of the naked id of the community. And, and there are some extremely frustrated and angry um, people out there. Um, it's been a, it's been a, you know, not just the past year, but the, I'd say the last five years in, in this country have been, you know, quite polarizing. Yeah. In, in our last few minutes here, you, you wrote a column recently titled Academic Study Shows Desert Sun Opinion Page Experiment Curbed Polarization. Can you talk mm-hmm. about this? I, I know that the Sun went through a very specific plan around your opinion page. Can you talk about that? Talk about this study and what you hope comes out of it. Yeah, so I'll try to sum this up really quickly. I read an academic paper from some researchers who were looking at what happens when a community loses a local news source. You know, it could be a newspaper, it might be a TV or radio station, but most of it was newspapers. So they these researchers looked, you know, looked at all these places across the U.S. that have lost newspapers over the last, you know, 10, 15 years. And, um, you know, those are called news deserts, you know. So <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Um, but uh, what they found, they wanted to gauge the impact of that on political polarization. And so uh, what they found is that they looked at a way as a proxy of 
how polarized people are. They looked at split ticket voting, which means, you know, maybe you vote for a Republican for president, but you vote for Democrat for senator, vice versa, right? So in communities where that have lost their um, local news source, split ticket voting dropped dramatically, right? Um, and their theory about this was that um, people when a local news source goes away, they don't stop consuming news. They just consume more national news and national news is extremely polarized, as you know. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of absorb (laughs) that polarization and, you know, bring it back to their communities. So, you know, I was troubled by that finding among all the other findings about, you know, the loss of the impact of loss of local media. Um, And so, um, you know, I was, I was, interested in that finding and at the same time i was really you know i've been uh, when i came to desert sun you know and i try to evaluate it um you know i'm not in charge of the business side of the desert sun but i'm very interested in business i worked at the stanford business school and um i you know really want to think about the value proposition of the desert sun which to me is local news and local content of all levels you know sports and arts and entertainment and yes opinion you know um i don't really see the value in us reprinting like national columnists that are syndicated from places like the New York Times or the Washington Post. Those people are great writers. If you want to read them, go read it on the Washington Post or New York Times website. What I can give you, what the New York Times, the Washington Post and Fox News can't give you is someone talking about the local community, right? Um, The Maryland statue, you know, water (laughs) issues, the Joshua tree, whatever it is. Like, they're not going to do that for you. Who's going to do it for you? Only local reporters and local local news sources. So, you know, I wanted to, you know, try to get more local content on our opinion pages. I also wanted to see if that would increase readership of our local of our opinion content, which is not as popular as our other content online. And I wanted to like see if we could start to move the needle on that. Um, so, uh, yeah, we did an experiment in the summer of 2019 uh, for a month. We kept all national topics off the opinion page. We even kept cartoons that dealt with Washington or the president or whatever off the opinion page. Um, and, uh, you know, we tried to, you know, see what would happen. Um I didn't, you know, by chance, these these academics uh, saw my column you know, kind of kicking off the experiment and they decided to jump in and sort of study this as a real life experiment. And um, they did phone surveys, you know, before and after our experiment. Uh, They surveyed uh, a thousand people in Palm Springs and then they had a control newspaper, uh, which was in Ventura County, which is also a paper owned by Gannett, about the same size as ours, that didn't do this during that month. And um, what they found, they surveyed, you know, readers in both of those communities pre and post uh, that month. And they found that in Palms, uh, polarization continued to increase in Ventura uh, during that time, whereas in Palm Springs, um, there was no increase. Wow. And it found, yeah, it found that a lot of people were aware of the experiment and uh, liked it. So we're going to try to keep moving in that direction. Yeah, Julie, this is a really important topic, and I thank you so much for doing it. It's so important for the community what you're doing with this, and we're going to talk about this more, I hope, again, when I get you back on the show. Julie, it's been fantastic having you. 
thank everybody for being here today listening to the Coachella Valley Chronicles. I am Randy Florence on iHub Radio.